All right, take your Bibles and open them up to John chapter 13. We're going to be looking at the first 31 verses this morning. If you have one of our black Bibles, it's on page 956. Last week, we talked about how John's gospel is divided into two main sections, right? The book of signs and the book of glory. And the book of signs concluded last week with, the, with this close of Jesus' public ministry and his rejection by Israel, the Jewish nation as a whole. Chapter 13 opens the book of glory with Jesus' personal ministry to a remnant of Jewish disciples through whom Jesus would constitute the new people of God, the new Israel made up not only of Jews but also Gentiles, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The first 12 chapters of John's gospel covered roughly three years, three years of Jesus' life. Chapters 13 through 19 cover a period of less than 24 hours. We're slowing way down now, right? And it starts with Jesus showing his love for his disciples in the, in the upper room by washing their feet. And it ends with Jesus showing his ultimate display of love for his disciples in the world by dying on the cross for our sins. And as we work our way through the first 31 verses of John 13 this morning, we'll be tested to see whether or not we truly understand this love that Jesus has shown we just had our prayer time, but I want to pray specifically a, a prayer from, that Paul prays from Ephesians chapter 3 uh, for us this morning as we get started. Father, as we receive your word together this morning, I pray that you would grant us according to the riches of your glory to be strengthened with power in our inner being through your spirit that, and that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. I pray that we, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able this morning to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of your love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Faith without works is dead. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up, right? Over and over again, these are just two examples, Scripture teaches us that the Christian life must be one of, of both doctrine and devotion. Paul tells Timothy, let them see uh, your, your, your life and practice, your, your doctrine and practice, right? We need faith and practice. The problem is, though, that we often tend to separate those things and we settle for just learning more for knowing more, for gaining information than to, for seeking actual transformation. We, we like to love the Lord our God with all our mind, but we forget to love the Lord our God with all our heart. Over and over again, the scripture calls us to take these things and apply them to our hearts. Do these things. We're going to see that today. Here's our, here's our main uh, point. Um, that we're going to see from, from this passage. If we know what Jesus has done for us, then we must show what Jesus has done for us. If we know what Jesus has done for us, then we must show what Jesus has done for us. We're going to look at that whole sentence in, in each half, each part. So here's what we're going to start with. If we know what, what Jesus has done for us, let's dig in. Chapter 13, verse 1. Before the Passover festival, 
Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Last week, we saw that the arrival of the Greeks signaled the arrival of the hour, right? For Jesus to be glorified through his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his exaltation. Here we see that the arrival of that hour shifted Jesus' priorities away from the crowds and onto preparing his 12 disciples for everything that was about to take place. John, John opened his gospel by saying that Jesus created the world and he came into the world. He came to his own. He came to his own people and, and they did not receive him, right? We saw last week, we saw this last week as John quoted from the prophet Isaiah to show the wholesale rejection of Jesus by the Jews. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And here in verse 1, we see that phrase again, his own. But it's used a little bit differently here. It's not referring to the Jews as a whole, but to the disciples with him in the upper room, whom he would give his life for and send out into the world to spread his message of salvation to all people. John says that Jesus loved them to the end. Loved them to the end. This is the only way Jesus ever loves. Do we know this? This is the only way Jesus ever loves. Why? Because this is the only way God ever loves. And he's the fullness of God. He's the embodiment of who God is. In Exodus 34, when God revealed his glory to Moses, by letting all of his goodness pass by Moses, God declared his name, the Lord, Yahweh. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Jesus loved them to the end because he's the Lord and the Lord abounds in faithful love and truth. The Lord maintains faithful love to a thousand generations. And Jesus was going to show his disciples what that faithful love looked like by being punished for their guilt and taking the consequences of their iniquity upon himself so that they could be forgiven of their iniquity, rebellion, and sin. He loved them to the end, to the uttermost to the final moments of his earthly life and on into eternity. That's how Jesus loves all of his own. That's how Jesus loves all of his own, all who trust in him alone for forgiveness and eternal life. Listen, if you're a believer in here and you're sitting here this morning in shame for failing for the 10,000th time this week, this morning, you need to know that Christ's love for you has not changed, and it will not change, not even a little bit, not even a little bit. Listen, he will never walk away from you in anger. Why? Because he walked to the cross for you in love, and his love abounds in faithfulness. He maintains it. It's steadfast. It's unwavering. It's immovable. It's steady. It's permanent. It's hard for us to fathom that kind of love because our own love seems 
to abound in unfaithfulness, right? But God already knows that about us. That's why in his faithful love, he gives us helpful reminders over and over again in his word of his faithful love. He doesn't just tell us that we don't that we can't just know things, we need to do them. He shows us over and over again that it is his love for us that enables us to do that. If you need some reminders this week, you can spend some time meditating on passages like Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 John chapter 4, or right here again in John 13. Because we're going to see this love Jesus gave his disciples a tangible picture of that faithful love here in the upper room. So let's keep reading. Verse 2. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. And next he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and dry them with the towel he tied around them around him. The striking contrast that John gives here between Judas and Jesus in verses two and three, right? Remember in chapter eight when Jesus told the Pharisees, You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires? Look at the contrast here in verses 2 and 3. John tells us that Judas was set on carrying out his wicked father's desires, and Jesus was set on carrying out his heavenly father's desires. Jesus knew what the devil had put into Judas's heart, but he also knew what the father had put into his hands, everything, right? He knew that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, and he knew that his return to the Father would come through his betrayal by Judas, and so Jesus resolved to demonstrate the depth of his willingness to give himself sacrificially for his own. Picture this for a minute. The Lord of glory got up from the table. They're reclined. This is a banquet. Laying on their side. He got up from the table. He left his place there as the host, the seat of honor, he laid aside his outer clothing, tied a towel around his waist. He dressed himself like a slave. No person of stature in that day, whether Jew or Gentile, would even consider demeaning themselves in this way. But Jesus went even further. He didn't just dress the part. He humbly embraced it by washing his disciples' feet. Now, in that day, those of equal status didn't, didn't even wash each other's feet, let alone the feet of those who were of a lower status than they were. That's probably why all the disciples still had dirty feet when they laid down to eat supper. From Mark's gospel account, it seems that, that Jesus and the 12 were the only ones in the upper room. So there was no slave in there, there were no, no household servants to come and, and wash their feet for them, and, and none of them were going to wash each other's feet. They can stay dirty. What's even more telling is that none of them, not one, jumped at the chance to wash Jesus' feet. He's the only one in the room that had other people in the room that could and should do it. 
It would have been completely appropriate for them to do that because he was the Messiah and they were his followers. You can imagine their shock and bewilderment then as they watch Jesus get up and do what none of them had even given a second thought to do. The one about whom John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal strap, began untying the sandal straps of everyone in the room who was completely unworthy, and he began to wash their dirty feet. Let's keep going. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter. We can count on Peter to say something, right? He came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand You'll never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Jesus had a disciple like Peter? Aren't you so thankful that we get to read about all of the things that he says and does, understanding that that's probably exactly how we would respond? Isn't he so relatable? One minute he's telling the Lord of creation how things should be, and the next minute he's emphatically declaring his wholehearted loyalty to Christ. Wait, hold on, you're doing this wrong. Okay, I'll do everything you say and add more, right? Doesn't it? Listen. We've all been on that teeter-totter, haven't we? Doesn't it help our own fickle hearts to see our Lord's gentle and patient love for Peter as his pendulum swings from one extreme to the other? Isn't it a, a comforting reminder that Jesus understands us even when we don't understand him? And instead of dismissing us, what does he do? He disciples us. He teaches us. Peter didn't realize that this foot washing was a symbol that pointed to the cross. In less than 24 hours from this moment, this symbolic act would give way to the sacrificial act, the reality that it pointed to, and the shock and bewilderment that Peter and the others felt here would be nothing in comparison to the shock and bewilderment they would feel at the death of the one who was washing their feet. But after the cross, after the tomb, they would understand, Jesus said. They would understand the significance of what Jesus was doing in that upper room. Peter couldn't comprehend the foot washing beyond an earthly and social sense. This is the way that, that most people gravitate in John's gospel. They can't, they can't get beyond the, the, the temporal, the earthly. Peter can't get past the social dilemma here. Jesus wanted him and the others to understand this has eternal significance. This has spiritual implications. He looked at Peter and he said, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. You have no part with me. Jesus wasn't talking about their feet when he said that. He was talking about their hearts. If I don't wash you on the inside, then you have no part with me. This is the reality that Jesus was pointing to. Unless he washes your sin-stained heart spiritually clean 
with his own blood shed on the cross, then you have no unity, no fellowship with him, no share in his salvation. You are not one of his own. You have no part with me. This is what he says. Instead, as John put it back in chapter 3, the wrath of God remains on you. This is why this is so important for us to get. We need to understand this. No one is exempt from this reality. We all, every single one of us, need to be washed, and only Christ can give us the cleansing that we truly need. We sang it this morning. What can wash away my sin? Jesus' blood and some other things? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In response to Peter's overcorrection in verse 9, Jesus said this, look at verse 10 and 11. One who is bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he's completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. A person who's already bathed doesn't need to take another bath every time he gets his feet dirty. These disciples walked everywhere in a dusty climate with sandals on. Their feet were dirty all the time, right? They leave that house, they go to another place. All that foot washing goes away. Their feet are dirty again. But that didn't mean that their whole body was dirty. Jesus used this imagery to point to his once and for all cleansing work on the cross. When we trust in Christ's sacrificial death for our sins, we're made clean by his blood forever. Your blood has washed away my sin. We sang that also this morning. This is his work of justification. This is when Jesus was nailed to the cross. So was the entirety of our sin debt. Colossians uh, 2 tells us that. He nailed it to the, to the cross. That means that even the sins that we have not yet committed are already paid for by Christ. You ever go for the prepay at the pump? I never understood how that worked. Like, what if I don't use all the money I, I paid ahead? Do they just keep it or what? Jesus knows exactly how much to prepay. And it's everything. His blood covers all of it. He didn't just pay our debt, though. He gave us his own righteousness. And so even though we will struggle with sin, God never struggles to see us as holy. Did you catch that? Even though we will continue to struggle, that means fight against, that means war against. We will continue to struggle with sin. God never struggles to see us as holy. That's incredible. Our righteous standing before him, listen, is, is as secure as his love is for us. Abounding, steadfast, faithful. But our feet are still dirty a lot, aren't they? There's no, no day that goes by that we don't struggle against sin, Right? Because Christ was, has already washed us once and for all. Listen, we don't need another bath. We don't need another bath. We just need to wash our feet. What does that mean? How do we do that? That's done through daily repentance. 
It's the ongoing act of remembering Christ's cleansing work on the cross as we confess our sin and turn to him for the forgiveness that he's already secured, he's already purchased for us. This ongoing cleansing is his work of sanctification, and all of this leads to our glorification where sin is no more. Here's how John puts it in one of his New Testament letters, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins to Christ, he reminds us that we've already been made clean. And he invites us to come to him yet again for the mercy and grace that we need over and over and over, never runs out because he loves us to the end. When you pray, when was the last time you, you included repentance in your prayer? Forgive me. Forgive me. Jesus said that not everyone in the room was clean. He just washed all their feet, all their feet, but physical washing wasn't enough. Jesus knew that there was still one in the room who had no part with him, one who would betray him. And that reality made it all the more important for the rest of them to understand the significance of that moment. Look at verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? Do you know what I have done for you? Let's review for a moment what Jesus did for them, but let's, let's pull in Paul's words in Philippians 2 and look at them side by side. In verses 3 and 4 here, it says that Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper. He left his place at the table, right? In Philippians 2, 6, Paul says, though he existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Verse 4 here, he laid aside his outer clothing. He took a towel and he tied it around himself. Philippians 2, 7 Instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Verse 5 here, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Verse 12 here, when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again. He went back to his rightful place at the table. Philippians 2.9, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Just as Jesus left his place of honor at the supper table in order to take up the towel of humility and serve those who did not deserve to have their feet washed by him, he also left his place of glory at the Father's side in order to take up the cross of humiliation and die for those who did not deserve to have their hearts cleansed by him. And just as he returned to his rightful place at the table when he was finished washing his disciples' feet, 
he also returned to his rightful place at the Father's side after his atoning work on the cross was finished and he rose from the dead. His disciples in the room did not understand this yet because the cross hadn't happened yet. They're less than 24 hours away from it and they have no idea it's coming. I think we take that for granted sometimes. They only had the symbol. They still needed the reality that it pointed to. But listen, we have the side-by-side picture. We have the symbol and the reality. And so we need to consider this question that Jesus asked in verse 12. Do you know what I have done for you? Do you know what I have done for you? Here's what he's done for us. The Lord of glory left his exalted position, and humbly made himself our servant in order to cleanse us from our sin. Father had given everything into his hands, and Jesus willingly opened those hands up so that nails could be driven through them and hang them on a cross. He was crucified so that we could be justified and then sanctified and then glorified. Jesus loved us to the end. He loved us to the end. This kind of love then necessitates a response. If we know what Jesus has done for us, then we must show what Jesus has done for us. Look at verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master. A messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you what? Do them. If you do them. Foot washing was not only a symbol of the salvation that Christ had come to provide, it was, an, it was also an example for his disciples to follow. And Jesus made it clear that he expected them to follow it, right? He said, listen, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. That's exactly what I am. He had the higher status than they did. He was the one worthy to be served, and yet he humbled himself and became the servant. And if he made himself low then those who call him teacher and Lord should make themselves low too. This is what he's saying. If he's our teacher, then we're his students. Students who learn what he teaches and seek to apply that to our lives. If he's our Lord, then we're his servants who listen to his commands and seek to carry them out. There's a clear hierarchy here in verses 14 through 16. Listen, teacher and student, Lord and servant, master and servant, or slave, sender, messenger. The student, the servant, the slave, the messenger, none of them can pridefully elevate themselves above what the teacher, the Lord, the master, and the sender have humbly lowered themselves to do. If the one who is greater does it, then the one who is lower has to do it too. That doesn't mean that we purchase our salvation with our own blood. That's not how we follow Christ to the cross. Only he could do that. 
What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood. And we have to say this part of Jesus, right? But it's because we've received the blessing of salvation that we can now freely follow Christ's example of humble service to others. God has given us good works that he's planned for us to do as fruit of our salvation, not as payment for it. And when we freely follow Christ's example, we experience the, the blessing of being transformed more and more into his likeness as we do what our teacher, our Lord, our master, our sender has called us to do. After all, didn't he say, he, he didn't say, you are blessed if you know these things, right? There is blessing in knowing, but what did he say? You are blessed if you do these things. Doctrine and devotion go together. Faith and practice go together. We can't do these things, though, if we don't understand them as Jesus has laid them out for us here. Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book called Lessons from the Upper Room, and reflecting on this passage, he wrote this, people often equate being a Christian with living by the golden rule. Jesus did, in fact, teach a positive version of it. As you wish that others would do for you, do so to them, Luke 6.31. We should love our neighbors as ourselves, he says. But Jesus is not giving us a lecture on ethics here. His golden rule is not a piece of moral advice disconnected from himself. It's modeled by him. And, and the power to follow it is only found in him. And so the issue for me as a Christian is not... How would I like them, that person, to treat me, and then I should try to do the same for them? Instead, it's this. How has the Lord Jesus treated me? And that, that is the model for the way I will treat others. With his help, I will display the same grace he has shown me. My goodness. When I read that the first time, and even now, I find that incredibly convicting. I'm immediately confronted with the reality of how often I look at others first, right? And how they're treating me instead of how Christ himself has treated me. And as long as I'm confessing things, I need to admit that it's easy for me to focus not simply on others, but, but how they're mistreating me. And use that as an excuse to justify the way I treat them. I don't think I'm the only one in the room that understands that or feels that. Think about the last person who sinned against you. Probably didn't take you very long, right? Now consider Jesus' words here again in verse 15. I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. We read that and then we have to ask, how has the Lord Jesus treated you when you have sinned against him? And then we have to ask, is that how you're treating that person who sinned against you? What needs to happen in order for you to forgive them as the Lord has forgiven you? We're told to do that. 
in Ephesians and Colossians, we forgive as, just as, the Lord has forgiven us. When we have to answer questions like these, we quickly realize how hard it is to actually make ourselves servants of one another for Jesus' sake, right? If only it were as simple as literally washing each other's feet, right? Servanthood has to be more than a principle in our lives, though. It needs to be our everyday practice. We will only be able to, to truly be servants of one another when we remember this important reality that the one who gave us the example to follow also gave us the grace we need to follow it. No hope without that. No hope without that. And after all, if there's anyone who truly understands the difficulties that come with serving others, isn't it Jesus? Look at verse 18. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen. But the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. Sounds like uh, Genesis 3.15 language, right? I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Now, no one in that room was going to follow Jesus' example perfectly, right? But there was one man in the room who would not follow Jesus' example at all. Jesus had chosen all 12 of these disciples, and he knew what was in the heart of each one of them. He didn't suddenly realize in that moment that there was a traitor in their midst. John 6, 64 tells us that Jesus knew from the beginning those who would believe and who would betray him. He already hinted at this while he was washing their feet when he said, not all of you are clean. And here in verse 18, he quoted from Psalm 41, verse 9, to prepare them for the betrayal so that when it happened, they would understand that it was in fulfillment of the scripture just as he said, and they would believe that he really was the Messiah, at least 11 out of the 12 of them would. The one who eats my bread has, ra has raised his heel against me. That verse from Psalm 41 is talking about being betrayed by a close friend. I think sometimes we can't fathom, we can't, we can't grasp like, like there has to be some sort of caveat that Judas was never really a part of the group. That he wasn't one of the intimate 12 that was in that upper room with Jesus, eating with him, talking with him, listening to his teaching, getting his feet washed by him. Jesus was looking around the table at 12 close friends when he told them plainly, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Can you imagine sitting there? As his eyes are moving around the room and they lock on with yours? Don't let it be me, right? And as he said this, he was troubled in his spirit again, in anguish, in turmoil. We've seen this word 
before at Lazarus's grave and when Jesus predicted his death. Not only because he was about to endure the betrayal of a close friend, but also because he knew that that betrayal would lead ultimately to the cross where he would endure the righteous wrath of his heavenly father and die in the place of his own whom he loved to the end. If the disciples weren't already feeling uncomfortable after their teacher and Lord had just washed their feet, surely then the statement that Jesus just made in verse 21 had them all squirming, right? Let's keep going. Look at verse 22. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was talking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about, and so he leaned back against Jesus. Again, they're reclining, right? He just rolled over, and he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I've dipped it. And when he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, some of them thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. We know the Judas who keeps the money bag as a thief. We know the Judas of Iscariot as the betrayer. We've been given that information ahead of time. We have Christ's viewpoint here. We don't have the disciples' viewpoint. This entire scene so far in the upper room has been one big contrast between the disciples' uncertainty, all the things they didn't know, right? And Jesus' certainty. Listen again, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. He knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, that he was going back to God. He knew who would betray him. He knew those he had chosen. He knew that the scripture had to be fulfilled. He knew who to give the piece of bread to. Look at the language John uses for the disciples. They didn't realize what Jesus was doing by washing their feet. They didn't know what he had done for them. They were uncertain which one he was speaking about when he said, one of you will betray me. None of them knew why Jesus said what he said to Judas. They were confused from the moment Jesus got up from the table and tied a towel around his waist, but Jesus was always in complete control. He didn't just know that Judas would betray him. He willingly consented to the betrayal. Judas, what you're doing, do quickly. Don't waste any time. The hour has come. The devil may have already put it into the heart of Judas Judas, to betray Jesus, but Judas still needed Jesus' permission to do it. That's because nothing happens apart from the sovereign plan of God. Look at verse 30. 31. After receiving the piece of bread, he, Judas, immediately left, and it was night. When he had left, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Judas may have left with clean feet, but he also left with a dirty heart. 
When he left, it was dark outside. It was night. And that was a sign that he was dark inside. But that darkness cannot, and it did not, overcome the light, the glory of God. It is time for the Son of Man to be glorified and for God to be glorified with him. Judas left to carry out the desires of his father, the devil, and betray Jesus, his friend. But as Jesus watched his friend walk out of the room, he knew that the plan of his heavenly father was being carried out. The plan that would lead to his glory and the glory of the father with him. In the betrayal, Judas and ultimately Satan raised his heel against Christ. You remember Genesis 3.15? I'll put hostility between your seed and her seed. You will crush his heel, but he will crush your head. But in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, yeah, his heel was struck. But he raised his heel, and he crushed Satan, that serpent's head, in glorious triumph. But we must not forget that the way to this victory was through apparent defeat. His exaltation came through his humiliation. The king of glory became a slave. And to borrow Sinclair Ferguson's words again, we should never forget that the Lord Jesus was willing to wash the heel that was lifted up to crush him. He washed Judas's feet. He humbly served the one he knew who would callously betray him, and he left us an example to follow. One more quote from Ferguson. That Judas left the room after the foot washing and not before adds to this challenge of Jesus' words in verse 15. There are no exceptions to the feet we are called to wash. Every natural instinct that cries out, but not his feet, surely not her feet, is suffocated by Christ's love for us and in us and by our desire to imitate him. Following Christ's example means that we humble ourselves enough to wash the feet of those that we think deserve it the least. And we're only able to do that when we understand that Christ washed not only our feet when we did not deserve it, but he washed our hearts when we did not deserve it, when we deserved it the least. In verse 23, John calls himself the one Jesus loved. Did you catch that? It's the first time he uses this phrase in his gospel. Not referring to himself that way out of arrogant assumption that he deserved what the others didn't, that he had some special uh, seat next to Jesus at the table. He's doing so out of the humble recognition that he was just as unworthy of having his feet washed by Jesus as Peter was, And as Judas was, as everyone was in that room, he's recounting this story as one who now understands what he didn't realize at first in the upper room, that Jesus loved him to the end. Do you know this love of Jesus? You do if you've put your trust in him. Don't walk out of here this morning with clean feet and a dirty heart. Don't don't walk out of here thinking, well, I came to church, I did my thing. 
We all need the cleansing that only his shed blood can provide. Consider the cross of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, left his exalted position and humbly made himself a servant of sinners in order to cleanse us of our sin. Would you betray that kind of faithful love by rejecting it? If he doesn't wash you, if he doesn't cleanse your heart, then you have no part with him. Instead of rejecting his love, why not receive it by receiving Christ himself? Why not confess your need as we all do and need to? Why not, why not confess your need for his forgiveness and trust him to forgive you? Be washed. Be washed clean. As those who've been cleansed by Christ, we can humbly and joyfully call ourselves his own. The ones that Jesus loves. The ones that Jesus loves to the end. Not because we deserve it, but because he's poured out his grace into our hearts and he's washed us clean. And the one who washed us clean has given us now the towel and the water basin. And he's called us to become servants of one another for his sake. Now, we could end our time today by literally getting a, a bucket of water out and a towel. I could get on my hands and knees and walk down the rows and, and, and clean all your feet. And it would be a beautiful picture, powerful picture. You could wash each other's feet. It would be a beautiful picture, powerful picture. But we need more than a powerful picture we need a humble posture. We need to be committed to serving one another in the love of Jesus Christ, love that we now know firsthand, love that does and expresses itself when nobody else is in the room but you and the ones that you're serving. Love that roots out our pride and bends our knees to serve the undeserving as the undeserving. If we know what Jesus has done for us, then we must show what Jesus has done for us. So as Christ has loved us, may we love one another to the end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we can only say that because you have given us your love first. We love because you have first loved us. And we confess we fall woefully short of following the example that Christ has given us. We confess our need for forgiveness daily, for our feet to be washed again and again. But we rest in the reality that our hearts have been washed once and for all. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to seek the grace that we need in order to give the grace that others need. And that we would do that so that Christ is glorified and God is glorified with him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up and sing together.